0: Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 through 14, that is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. They are your ancestors, tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I ask of them, and in my anger I took an oath they shall never enter my place of rest. So be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must encourage each other every day while it's still called today so that you will not be deceived by sin or hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share with all that belongs to Christ. The word of the Lord.
1: Many of you uh, know the song Amazing Grace, and you know the story of the man who wrote that song, John Newton, how as a young man he was a sailor, first of all serving in the Royal Navy of Great Britain, and then he became involved in the African uh, slave trade. But as a young man, it just seemed like he was always running around with a rough crowd of people, a crowd of people who leaned towards the vulgar side of life. But though he was all the time running around with a really bad crowd, everybody in that crowd would tell you that John was the worst of the bunch nobody more wicked than he. In fact, one of the captains who had sailed with John a number of different times said that John Newton was the most profane man he had ever met. Now this is coming from a man, the captain, who was used to seeing the dark, evil, ugly side of life. So to make a statement like that, I mean, if ever there was a human being who appeared to be beyond uh, 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 reach, it was John Newton. Yet, in in the summer of 1748, in the midst of a violent storm at sea, suddenly John Newton cries out to God for help. And suddenly all that training that he'd received as a little boy. See, his mom died when he was only seven years old. But for those first seven years of his life, she just kept pouring into him. Every day reading the Bible to him, every day praying for him, every day talking to him about the Lord. So now, years later, in the midst of this storm at sea, suddenly all that training comes to light again, and John Newton begins to For the first time in a long time, he begins to reach out to the Lord. Now, John Newton will tell you that was a turning point in his life. From that moment on, he stopped drinking, he stopped gambling, every day he began to pray, every day he began to read his Bible. I mean, he really got serious again about following Jesus. But here's the irony. For the next couple of years, he continued to work in the slave trade, and he saw no problem with that at all. So the man who wrote this inspiring song, Amazing Grace, where in that song he testified, I once was blind, but now I see. Yeah, in many areas of his life, he saw how God's truth connected with him. But there were other areas of his life where he was not seeing the connection at all. He had these blind spots. Well, years and years later, John Newton would reflect back on that and say, My heart still shudders when I think back to that time in my life. And how could I call myself a Christian and be involved in something so wretched? to treat human beings like slaves. I am so ashamed. So now John Newton came to realize that though God's grace, yes, it is amazing, and its impact upon our lives is deep and profound, yet its effect upon us is not always immediate. And what he meant by that was, yes, because of the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. But boy, I've still got a long way to go. In other words, John Newton came to understand that you can never just stand still in your faith, you can never just take your life with Jesus for granted. Every day you've got to keep learning, every day you've you got to keep growing so that you can experience more and more of that amazing grace, so that God's grace can have more and more of its healing effect upon your life. And John Newton realized that wasn't just true for him, that's true for every Christian. Well, eventually he left his life as a sailor and he began to train for the ministry and he ended up becoming this preacher for a little church in a little town called Olney, O-L-N-E-Y. It's a little town about 60 miles north of London. He preached there for more than 20 years. And during that ministry, he would often write what we today would call a blog. But in his day and time, they called it a meditation. And on one particular day, his meditation had to do with a hallelujah chorus. See, it had become a tradition there in the 1770s, where on Easter weekend, people from all over England would come down to the city of London to hear a special performance of Handel's Messiah. And John Newton thought that was great because the entire text for that music came right out of the Bible. So he's all for this. But Newton's concern was this. Because the music to Handel's Messiah is so majestic, so inspiring, so moving, the tendency is people will get caught up in the music and not listen to the words. Because the music is so glorious, they'll get caught up in the music itself and not pay attention to the story that's being presented through the music. And so the result is when the concert is over, people come walking out of the building and they are just absolutely thrilled. Wow, wasn't that awesome? I mean, they are on an emotional high. And yet, a couple days later, when the tingles disappear, the effect is completely gone because the truth that was presented through the music never really captured their hearts. So, in that meditation, John Newton used this analogy. He said, listening to music but not listening to the words is kind of like having a telescope this high-powered telescope, and you can tell just by looking at it, oh, this this is something special. I mean, here's this marvelous instrument of science, but if all you do is just stand there and look at the telescope, but you never look through it, you're missing the point. Telescopes were not made to be admired. They were made to be used. They were made so it could help you see something else. So John Newton said to really appreciate a telescope, you need to take it and set it up on a hill and bend over and begin to look through and You won't believe your eyes, the comets, the planets, the stars, the galaxies. I mean, your mind will just be dazzled by the view, so dazzled that after having an experience like that, you'll never be content again just simply to look at a telescope. Anytime a telescope's close by, you're going to want to look through it. Well, John Newton says it should be the same thing with a Hallelujah course. When you stand as the choir gets to that part of the music and you can feel the tingles going up and down your spine, I mean, your soul is just literally electrified by that glorious music. But if all you're hearing is the music and not the words, you're missing the point. It's like you're just looking at a telescope instead of looking through it. So John urged his people, learn to look through the music and think about the God that they're singing about. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And as you begin to appreciate what that means, now you begin to understand all the way through that chorus why the choir keeps repeating those words, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And you realize, oh, they're right. They're so right. There's no one like Him. There is no one like our God. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this to be very convicting because don't we tend to do the same thing with our Christian life? Many of us are guilty, and I'm talking about myself, many of us are guilty of treating our faith like those Christmas decorations we keep boxed up in the garage. And once a year we pull them out and we put them on the tree so everybody can ooh and ah, and isn't that pretty? But it's just something to look at, something to admire, nothing more. It's just a decoration. Is that all our faith is? You know, something we just kind of wear occasionally. Oh, you go to church? That's nice. Oh, you're a Christian? That's nice. Pat you on the back. And that's all it is. Just a decoration we wear occasionally. Or for some of us, our Christian life is kind of like that collection of baseball cards we keep stored up in the attic. we got it all stuffed inside that old shoebox, And every once in a while, when a friend comes by, we'll pull it down, pull out the card and say, Hey, you see all the cards, these great cards I've collected over there? Wow, that's really something. So Sunday after Sunday, we get together as brothers and sisters in Christ and say, hey, let me tell you about some of the new things that I'm learning about God. Wow, David, that collection of information you've got about the Lord, it just keeps growing. Where do you come up with all these new insights into Scripture? And we kind of pat one another on the back. And yet when Sunday comes to a close, we take all that information and stuff it into a box and stick it up on the shelf, and for the rest of the week, we don't do anything with it. It was just information. And then we wonder why our Christianity never affects us, why it never changes the way we live. Understand, this book, the Bible, this is not just something to look at. This is something to look through. What we have here is a telescope from heaven that if you take the time to really look through this, you have the opportunity to see God. You have the opportunity to meet Jesus. You have the opportunity to connect with and be filled with God's Holy Spirit. This is the book that God uses to speak. Here is God talking to us. Here's the means that he uses to breathe his very life into us. Now, that's what's being taught and emphasized in the scripture that we wanna examine today. Hebrews chapter three, verses seven to 14. But this morning, I don't want us to just look at it. I want us to look through this and see how God yearns to connect with us again. So understand, the writer of Hebrews, when he gets to this point in the book, Verses seven to eleven, he's quoting the ninety-fifth Psalm. And then in verses twelve to nineteen, he takes that psalm and applies it to our lives. But what I want you to notice is how he starts off this quote. Hebrews chapter three and verse seven. Before he quotes the psalm, he says, So as the Holy Spirit says. Did you catch that? It's present tense. It's not just 1,400 years ago when King David first wrote this psalm. Way back then, the Holy Spirit was saying, no, now 1,400 years later when the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it in his book, here's the Holy Spirit using those same words again, but now he's speaking to this audience. And now 2,000 years later, here we are opening up God's book and reading those words. And once again, here's the Holy Spirit using those very same words, but now he is saying something to us. Here is God talking to us. Now, to appreciate what he's going to say, we need to ask ourselves, why this psalm? Why Psalm 95? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews, initially when he wrote this book, he was writing to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians, and he knows these people. He knows their traditions, their rhythms, their routines, and he knows, at least back in Bible times, I don't know if this is still true today or not, but at least back in Bible times, at the end of every week, you come time for the observance of the Sabbath. It always started on a Friday evening, they did their time differently, started on a Friday evening, and you'd start off to observe the Sabbath with synagogue service, and in that synagogue service, the first part of the service, they would reach for the scrolls, the scripture, and they would open up the scroll to Psalm 95. Week after week after week, they did the same thing. Why? Because it's Psalm 95 that reminds us, hey, during the course of the week, you can get so caught up in the busyness and the craziness of life, just so caught up in the routine of things, you forget to pay attention to God. And so Psalm 95 is calling us to come back to the Lord. Focus again upon Him. You see, Psalm 95, you could divide it into two parts. Verses 1 to 7, it just talks about the greatness of God. Would you look again at God? Do you realize there really is no one like Him? Look at His greatness. Look at His majesty. Look at His goodness. And look at how faithful He's been to us. Then you come to the last half of Psalm 95, verses 8 to 11. And and this is the part that he quotes here in Hebrews chapter 3. And in the last half of the psalm, the psalmist says, But all of that stuff, all this greatness and goodness, it means nothing if you're not listening if you're not paying attention, if you're not opening your heart, opening your very soul so that God can share his greatness and goodness with you. In other words, Psalm 95 says you cannot stand still in your faith and expect to keep growing and expect to keep making progress. We know that. You know, you got a cup of hot coffee in your hand. But before you get a chance to drink it, some friend pops by and you begin to you get caught up in this conversation. So while you're having the conversation, you kind of sit it down on the table for a while. And as it sits on the table, what happens? The hot coffee gets cold. Never change the oil in your car, won't be long before the engine begins to break down. Let a couple weeks go by. You don't mow the yard, you don't trim the shubs, shrubs, shrubs. Pretty soon, you got a mess on your hands. You let a couple of days go by. You don't clean the house. You don't pay the bills. You don't stay on top of all those emails. And before you know it, everything's just getting way out of control. No matter what aspect of life it is, you stand still, even in little ways. And it won't be long before your whole world begins to fall apart and everything becomes a disaster. Well, that's true spiritually speaking, too. You cannot expect to have a great Christian life by accident. It doesn't just happen. You've got to be intentional every day. Reaching out every day, seeking that connection with the Lord. Every day, opening yourself up so that He can connect with you. So that's why it says here in verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, He's talking to us. It says, today, meaning every day is a new day, and every day is a fresh opportunity to listen to the Lord. What a privilege. What a pleasure. But make sure when you're listening, you're really hearing what he has to say. Years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book called Life Together. And in that book, he has a a section called The Ministry of Listening. He says, too many times we're guilty of listening with half an ear. You know, somebody stops by to talk with us, and we really don't take what they're saying seriously because we think, oh, I already know what they're going to say. Or I already know what they're talking about, so I really don't need to pay attention to this. Or sometimes we're guilty of of listening half-heartedly because our mind is already occupied with somebody else or something else. And so when somebody else stops by to talk to us, in our minds we're thinking, Hey, what are you doing to interrupt me? I don't have time to listen to this right now. I need to focus on something else. And Bonhoeffer's point is, if you listen to God like that, His words will not make an impact upon you. And here's the danger. If you're just hearing but not hearing in a half-hearted way pretty soon a callous begins to develop on your soul. Your heart gets hard. Notice today, if you hear, if you're really listening to his voice, but if you don't, your heart gets hard because this has happened to people before. It happened to the Israelites back in the time of the rebellion. And when he talks about the rebellion, he's he's making reference back to Numbers chapter 14. Here were the Israelites on the verge of entering into the promised land. What should have been a glorious moment in their story. You remember they'd sent the 12 spies into the land. They were there for 40 days checking everything out, and now they came back to share their findings. And you remember 10 of them stood up and said, Sorry, we can't go in. There are giants in the land. That's all they could talk about that day. There are giants in the land. Their eyes were not upon God and the promises that He had made. Their eyes were only on themselves. They're giants in the land. We can't pull this off. And so as a result, the people get upset, and they begin to revolt. Literally, it says there in Numbers chapter 14, the people are ready to pick up stones and kill Moses and Aaron. How could you? You led us to this point just to be disappointed. You led us to this point just so we could be defeated. You guys led us astray. Hey, get rid of you. Let's get some new leaders and let's head back to Egypt. Rather than moving forward, they wanted to go back. And what made this act of rebellion, and that's what it was, an act of rebellion against God, what made it so heinous was this is the one generation more than any other that had witnessed the miracles of God. The ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. Every day, God bringing manna from heaven and water out of a rock. Every day, there was this giant cloud, this pillar of smoke right there in the very middle of the camp. And every night, a giant pillar of fire representing the very presence of God. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. I mean, every day, another display of the miraculous power and grace of God. And with all of that, they can't trust Him now to lead them into the promised land. What happened? How did they get to this point of rebellion? Well, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a long period of time. Notice, it says, during the time of testing in the wilderness. uh, When I hear that word wilderness, I I think of a thick forest. It's not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible uses that word wilderness, it means a desert, arid land. You know, it's a place where uh, you can't settle down and live in in an environment like this because there's just not enough in the way of resources to make a living out here. When you go through something like this, you want to get through as quickly as possible. There's not much in the way of water or food. In other words, you're in a place where it's really hard to survive unless, unless God's helping. And God was helping his people in some amazing ways. But instead of appreciating what God did every day, they grumble, they complain, griping about this, griping about that. See, during the time of testing, it was God who brought them out here It was God who led him out in the desert. He brought him out to this tough place because he wanted him to learn. You can rely upon me. Hey, you can trust me. Even when you get in those tough spots in life, know this. You can trust me. I will take care of you. And he demonstrated that day after day after day. But instead of learning and growing and allowing more and more God's grace into the life watch, the ancestors instead resisted and complained and grumbled and griped said, verse 9, when your ancestors tested me and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always, get this, their hearts are always going straight. We're not talking about something momentary or occasional. It was ongoing. It was persistent. 40 years they resisted. 40 years they rejected. 40 years they fought against God. They never really took the time to listen to get to know God, appreciate what he was doing for them. Their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So God says, I declared on oath my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Now, the whole reason the writer of the book of Hebrews is quoting this psalm is because he wants to warn us what happened to them. That can happen to us if we're not careful. Philip Yancey tells about a, a, a summer when he, uh, in order to finish his graduate degree, he had to learn German. had three months to learn this language that was new to him. So it was a horrible time in my life. He's up there at the University of Chicago and said all summer long, my friends are out there sailing on Lake Michigan and they're riding bikes in the park and they're just having all kinds of fun. Whereas all summer long, I have to sit in this classroom, hours on end, sit in this hot classroom and try to memorize German nouns and verbs. So boring, so dull, it was hard to get motivated. It said, the only reason I was taking this class is so I could get a degree. So it was the longest summer of my life. <laughs> Years later, he was reflecting back on that, and he wondered, what could have made the summer different? What could have made that experience something better? And then he thought, what if my wife, the woman I just love and adore, what if my wife only spoke German? Now I'd have a completely different motivation for wanting to learn this language. Now I would want to learn German in record time. Now I would willingly stay up late at night parsing verbs and adding new words to my vocabulary because more than anything else I'd want to enhance my ability to be able to communicate to the one that I love the most. See, learning German just to get a degree, nothing but a pain. But learning German so you can speak to the love of your life and now you'll study endlessly. And never regret a single moment. Do you see the difference between the two? In the one case, you're just looking at the language as though it's an end in itself. got to learn German just to learn German so you can get this degree. But in the other scenario, you're looking through the language. Now that language is a means to an end. It's a tool that will enable you to connect with somebody really special. When you see the Bible, do you just simply look at it? And see a bunch of nouns and verbs from an ancient time, an ancient world, an ancient religion? Or have you discovered we've got something special here? A telescope that if you'll take the time to actually look through it, you've got an opportunity to see God. You've got an opportunity to meet with Jesus. You've got an opportunity to connect with and just be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to be honest with us. Some days you're reading the Bible, that won't happen. He says in verses 12, 13, and 14, he says, to really be able to use this telescope well, you've got to be a part of a church. You've got to be a fellowship, be a part of a fellowship where you've got fellow believers who, on a daily basis, can help you, help you use this telescope, who can help you, when you open up this book, actually make that connection with God. Let me explain. When I was a little boy, we'd often make these trips to Ohio because that's where my grandparents lived, the grandparents on my mother's side. And they lived on a farm. And one of the things I remember about the farm was my grandpa's truck. It had an old Dodge pickup truck. And on that, in that Dodge truck, there was a, a little knob on the dash. It was a manual choke. And I noticed, especially in the wintertime, grandpa getting get in the truck. On those cold mornings, it just wouldn't start and then he'd reach for that button, and he'd pull the choke. And he tried to explain to me, because I I don't know much about engines, but I, I hope I get this right. When he pulls the choke, it sends more fuel to the engine, so it can warm up and start. And sure enough, he'd pull the choke, and the engine would fire up. Well, I don't know about you, but over the course of my Christian life, I've discovered there are days when I need a little extra fuel to get my heart warmed up, to get my spirit up and going again. There are days when I open up the Bible and Honestly, it's just flat and dry. I I can see the words, and I know exactly what the words mean, but there's no fire. There's no connection. Some days, the book just kind of lays there on my lap. In fact, some days, it feels like there's a cloud between me and the Lord. And it's like, God, I'm not catching what you're trying to say. I'm not seeing things clearly. And when that happens, I ask a friend for help. And here's how. I do this a lot of different ways. Here's two. Sometimes I'll reach up on the shelf and I'll pull off a devotion by Oswald Chambers or somebody else like that. And then I'll try to look at God through their eyes because many times they'll see things and notice things that I don't. And as I look at God through their eyes, suddenly the juices start flowing again. Suddenly my soul starts to get hungry again, hungry to have more and more of the greatness and goodness of God in my life. And then on a Sunday morning, here's another way, on Sunday morning when I'm not up here on the platform preaching, I try to sit in a class. I want to sit under the teaching of those people who are a little further down the road than me, people who've seen things and witnessed things and experienced things that, I've had, that I haven't. And when they're teaching, they're not just teaching with that lesson that day, they teach me through their life. I know these people. I know the way they live their lives. And as they share their insights and as they share their testimonies, I get encouraged. Suddenly, I get excited again about wanting to draw near To the Lord. You see, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, life in this world is like walking through a desert. It's not easy. And it never will be. That's why you cannot make this journey alone. Every day you've got to be a part of a fellowship where you've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are constantly encouraging you. Keep your eyes. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray.